You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 1 this morning, we're going to be covering specifically day one of God's creative work. I want to read to us starting in verse 1 though. Then we're going to pray and we're going to dive right into what God has for us this morning. Let's start there in verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And we're going to finish reading through chapter 1 to help us better understand the context of where we're going. It says in verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one, pe- in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind, and on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, And fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let us pray together. Father, we... Thank you again for the opportunity to gather together as a church family to study your word. I pray that as we seek to read it, to explain it, to give its meaning, Father, that you would encourage us and convict us where we need it. Father, we pray as we turn our attention to your creative work in the past, that it would produce in us a responsive worship in the here and now. God, I pray that we would continually submit ourselves to you as our creator. That we would continually be reminded that as our creator, you have ownership over us. You have creator rights over us that demand our allegiance. Father, you created us for your glory and we strayed from that. Father, I pray that 
in our salvation and our pursuit of sanctification as we seek to return to that that image bearage image bearing role where we we seek to show glory back to you father that we would be faithful in that as a church family we ask these things in Jesus name amen Leading up to uh, the discussion of the creative week, we've been talking about Genesis in general and the, the apologetics aspects of Genesis, how Genesis is used to defend our faith, how it gives us context for so many things that we do and why we do those things. It gives us uh, context for our belief system, for our worldview, why we see the world the way that we do. I want to move from that perspective more towards what we see from the psalmist, approaching the, the remaining uh, verses here in chapter 1 from a, a worship perspective, where we, where we come to this passage with the, with the mindset of seeing God for who he is and seeing God creating how he created uh, with the order and the design and the wisdom, seeing our place in that creation and allowing the text to drive us to worship God, I believe, in the same way that the psalmist we're reading and studying and understanding. So if you need to refresh yourself on the apologetic standpoint, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of our first uh, sermons on Genesis. But as we move forward, we want to turn our attention more as a, as a worshiper versus uh, the apologetic perspective that we've been taking. Here in Genesis 1, 2 through 5, we see God's creation of light. We see him specifically in 1 through 3 creating space and matter and time. It says that God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we see there in that initial verse 1 that God creates the heavens and the earth, and we're going to see the full creation of the heavens and the earth as we work through this week of creation. But ultimately, he begins by creating matter. We said that's a stark contrast to naturalism, to evolution that says that matter is eternal, that everything begins with matter. Instead, we see God being the initiator, the creator of matter. But we see it in a form that, that's not what we experience today. When we talk about creation declaring the glory of God, in its original form, as God begins to create, it's very, in some senses, scary. We see the earth is without form and void. Darkness is over the face of the deep. That word deep there carries the idea of the ocean waters. Now, now I don't know about you, uh, but there's, there's, there's a lot of things that are terrifying, but one that's very terrifying is the idea of being on the ocean in complete darkness. Uh, and that's the picture that we have here. A, a formless, uh, empty world environment that's full of water that's that's full of darkness and it's the canvas that god begins to use to create what we see today as we look at this overview of creation week there's two things that i believe god wants to communicate to the children of israel remember in context the children of israel with moses with joshua are moving towards the promised land and moses begins to write genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy He's writing these books. He starts with Genesis that has nothing to do with the current people, right? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that's their account. That's their account of what's happening in Moses' life and Joshua's life. But Moses steps back in years past and brings their attention to where they come from. And I believe in, in, in writing this, Moses writes, God's inspiring him to write, and he writes, and God wants to communicate two things to us, I believe, as we work through this creative week. First of all, I'm better than other gods. God, Yahweh, wants to communicate to the children of Israel, I'm better than other gods. Remember in context, they're going into the promised land where there's, there's people that are worshiping all kinds of aspects of creation. They're coming out of Egypt where they saw that rampant. Each plague was meant to deter them from worshiping those gods of the Egyptians. That, that Yahweh is sovereign over every aspect of creation. That he's better than the sun, he's better than the moon, he's better than the Nile River. He's better than all of these things that the, the pagans wanted to attribute glory and worship to. And so in the midst of this creation, creation account, God wants to communicate that he's better than other gods. But secondly, I believe God wants to say one other thing. That the miserable state of humanity, that the miserable condition of humanity is not due to any defect in his work. That the miserable state of humanity, the condition of humanity, is not due 
to any defect in his work. So God's going to walk us through his creative account, what it was like there at the foundations of the world. And he uses the account to remind us that as the Israelites move into the promised land, and they're going to be used as God's tool to kill a lot of people. A lot of men, women, and children are going to die as the children of Israel come into the promised land. And they are used as God's tool of judgment. And lest there be any confusion that these people are the way that they are because it's God to blame for it, that there's a defect in creation, God wants to show the accountability of man to him and how man has failed to to live up to that accountability. And so he wants to communicate, I'm better than other gods. And then secondly, there's nothing wrong with my creation the way that I first created it. That man is responsible for the miserable state of humankind right now. The, the wars and the divisions and the fighting and the jealousy and the, the strife that we see. That's so common even in our Christian relationships that these things still pop up. That our, our fellowship is not as it will be one day. I talk about this all the time with, with guys that I meet with. The, the, the conflict that we see, even in the midst of this church, trying to love each other, serve each other, there's still pride, there's still jealousy, there's still flesh that's a part of this church. And that won't be completely rid until Jesus returns. But even the conflicts that we see in our relationships, it has nothing to do with an error on God's part in his creation. And so he, he writes, he presents creation in such a way where we see that he created it very good. He created it in a way where we would have thrived had we chosen to obey him. In your notes there, chapter 1 and chapter 2, they're they're similar accounts of the creation. So when we come into chapter 2, we finish up with day 7, then we kind of revert back and God talks about it some more. What we find in chapter 1 is God shows how life is created. Chapter 1 is all about how life is created. And the term for God, Elohim, is used over and over and over in chapter 1. It's the the majestic name for God and his creative power and his sovereign name over all of creation. Chapter 1 is all about how life is created. Chapter 2 deals with how law is established. And so we see a different perspective in chapter 2. And we actually see the the covenant name Yahweh used in chapter 2. There's a switch there. Elohim used that plural term for God, but it's always used with singular verbs which shows that there is a plurality to God, but a singular nature to God. Elohim used in chapter 1. When we get into chapter 2, Yahweh, the the covenant name, Israel's name for God, is used. And it's used because God shows the establishment of law. Creator communicating to his creation how to live. And there's a shift in that name because that Yahweh name is an intimate name. It's a covenant name. It's a relational name. And God's law is based on relationship. It's based on the relationship that he establishes with man and woman. What we see here at the beginning, though, is that God creates an environment that's without form and void, the ESV translation tells us. The idea here is that it was formless, that it was empty. And what we see here is that God prepares an uninhabitable land to be inhabited by mankind. Currently, there's no life being produced in the current state that the world was in. It's formless. It's void. It parallels very well Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23, when the prophet looks out at the the desolation and the destruction that's come upon Judah because of Judah's rebellion. Verse 23, the prophet says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void and to the heavens they had no light. Now, he's, he's describing this poetically. Obviously, the land of Judah had not lost the sun. It had not completely gone back to this, this uh, pre-creative state, initial creative state. He's using language from Genesis 1 to describe how desolate the land had become because of Judah's rebellion. Jeremiah says, I look at it, and it's without form. It's without, it's, it's without anything to fill it. It's desolate. There's no life there. We have been completely thrown up, vomited from the land because of our rebellion. And God is placing us back there and is going to have to kind of, in, a, in a, um, a physical sense again, but a spiritual sense, recreate that land for them because of their rebellion. And so the picture there in Genesis 1, the prophet 
refers back to is that there was no life. That God had begun the creative work, but it was without form. It was void. It was uninhabited. God's initial creation leaves a dark, watery environment. But look, his presence is there in the midst of it. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit's hovering above this this formless, void environment. The word that's used here is the the word that you would use for a mother hen that, that, that hovers over her little chicks. Or as we're going to see here in Deuteronomy 32.11, a mother eagle who seeks to keep her, her young eagles with her and protected under her wings. In Deuteronomy 32.11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. That idea of fluttering over its young. That's the picture we have here of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's presence is over this watery environment. What that, what that reminds us is that God's direct presence is always present and working. From the very beginning of creation, it deters us from ever thinking that God started this process and then kind of retracted and let the whole thing play out on its own. That God stays very intentional in all aspects of his creation. The Holy Spirit's right there at the very beginning. What's really, really, really neat as well, in Second Peter one twenty one, we see uh, another aspect of how the Holy Spirit works. In Second Peter one twenty one, it says, "For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Now the word for carried along in the original language, it's written in what language? Second Peter. What language? Greek. Good. Okay, so Peter wrote it in Greek, so he used a Greek word that talks about the Holy Spirit carrying along these men that wrote the Bible. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but when Greek became such a popular language, they translated the Old Testament into Greek. Okay, so... That translation is not what we would call, um, didn't come directly from God, right? It's, it's a translation of the original into a new language, still authoritative, still God's word. But there were some decisions that had to be made from taking it to Hebrew to Greek. Not the original language. How do we communicate faithfully what God originally said in this new language? And when they chose the word For what the Holy Spirit was doing over those waters, it's the same word used for what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of these men that write God's word. That God, Holy Spirit, hovers over the waters, that he hovered over the men that wrote the Bible. Now why is that significant? It shows us that that not only does the Holy Spirit energize and set the pace for God's word, is that he also set it for creation. That the Holy Spirit was right there overseeing the whole process of creation. That he was the energizer. The word, the word carries the idea of vibrating or uh, energizing or, or setting the pace, setting the motion. The Holy Spirit energized the universe to bring life. He energized man to bring forth God's written word. The Holy Spirit is, is, is the, the, the one, the part of the Trinity that, that carries out God's plans as we see here. Next in your notes there, God spends day one through three giving form to this formless environment. It's without form, it's void. Days one through three, we're going to see God is giving form to it. God is, is, is building an environment. He is structuring the universe so that it can be filled. Because on days four through six, he fills the void. Days one through three, he gives form to it. In days four through six, he fills that void. So we start in Genesis one. God creates and the earth was without form and void, but it doesn't stay that way very long. Days one through three, God gives form to it. He creates light. He creates the sky. He creates the land. And we can see a break in the form because in day three, it's doubly good in the way that God refers to it. He uses the term, it is good, twice. 
And it shows us that natural break there, that the first three days are meant to fill that form, to, to provide structure and order. And then in day six, we see God refer to day six as good twice as well, because it's the, the filling of his canvas now, the filling of the form and structure that he's provided in this first three days. In days four through six, we see that he fills the sky with the celestial bodies. He fills the sky and the water with the fish and the birds. He fills the land with the animals and with man. What do we learn about God and his universe? Ultimately, we want to see that Genesis points us to Jesus, points us to, to the Trinity, points us to who God is. What do we learn about God and his universe as we work through this creative week? Number one, God is sovereign, that he controls everything. God is sovereign. He controls everything. And he does it in the most sovereign and absolute authoritative way possible. He simply speaks and things respond. He speaks and things respond. Things obey by his very voice. When he speaks, God is revealing his will. And what we see is that creation responds to that will. In Psalm 33, 6. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. It's one thing to say that God controls everything, but it's another to realize that God simply speaks. Many of us work in, in jobs where we would love to speak and things were automatically done. I would love it. I would love it as a principle if I only had to communicate things one time to my students and unfortunately to my teachers and it got done. Instead, what I find is that my voice doesn't carry the same authoritative um, presence as God's does, that I have to send multiple emails to parents and teachers to get things done. I have to communicate multiple times to students. And then when my communication's not working, I have to bring in consequences because I'm, I'm failing to yield the response that I need. We don't possess that type of authority. Even those that are in high up positions of authority don't fully possess authority to where they speak and things are done. God shows his sovereignty. He shows his authority in that Creation responds to his spoken word. Secondly, God creates with both the spirit and the word. God creates with spirit and word. That's significant too because we see that same pattern in the New Testament, right? God creates physically in the Old Testament by using the Holy Spirit who's hovering over the waters. And he does so by his spoken word. In the New Testament, we see that God creates spiritually god creates spiritual life by using both the holy spirit and his word god creates salvation in us he creates new creatures that follow him by the holy spirit convicting us opening our eyes to our blindness the holy spirit has to be present and be working for someone to be saved but the word can't be absent from that either right the word has to be present the spoken word of God that's in written form for us. God uses both to create spiritual life in the New Testament. We see God using the same pattern. Third, God's laws are part of the creative design. God's laws are part of the creative design. We're going to see that the instruction that God gives to us as his creation, the things that Adam and Eve are expected to do, and then the things that the children of Israel were expected to do, the rationale behind God's laws can be traced back to creation, can be traced back to the way God created things to be. So we're going to see that, that God has to continually communicate laws after sin to get us back to where we're supposed to be naturally. Naturally, born into this environment, this is how we would have lived. This is how we would have functioned. And yet because of sin, we're prone to act contrary to that. And so God's laws... Give us the rationale behind them. The ration, or God's creation gives us the rationale behind God's laws. Number four, we see God divides. God is a God of division here in, in creation. We see that he separates, that he gives boundaries to his creation. So we're not the only part of creation that has boundaries, that has laws to live by. He does this for his entire creative work. He's going to divide light and darkness. 
He's going to give them boundaries. He's going to divide the sky and the earth. He's going to divide the water and the land. We believe, too, that God created man and woman differently. That there's some division there in their functionality. That they're, that they're equal in value, but their function is different. God divides the male and the female because he's the God of division. But it's good division. It's appropriate division. It's for good purposes. But in, in discussing God and his universe, number five, we find that sin divides as well. That sin divides. While God's divisions are for good purposes, sin creates harmful division. We're going to see in this creation account that, that obviously man is separated from God because of sin. That man and woman are separated because of sin. Part of the consequences of the fall is that, that man, that the, 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 the husband is prone to be lazy. And he's prone to not lead and provide and give guidance to his family. When we were walking through marriage counseling with, with Alex and Jessica, I challenged Alex with this. I said, your tendency now, because of your sin, is to not be the husband that you're supposed to be. It's to be lazy, to, to pass off responsibility to your wife, to have her take the lead. And that, that falls right into what her cursed nature wants to do now as well. That she wants to lord authority over her husband. That she wants to, to go against his leadership. And so when the man is lazy, that falls right into it and makes it all that much more easy for her to, to carry out those sinful tendencies. There's division between man and woman because of sin. There's division between man and the soil. Men, we get up and work and we work hard and we labor because of sin. Work is not the consequence of sin. The hardness of the work is a consequence of sin. The soil does not respond the way that we want to because of our fallen nature. And then ultimately we see the, the sad separation of man and woman from the garden. Sin divides. God divides, but he divides for good purposes. Sin divides for harmful reasons. And number six, salvation divides. We're going to see that God communicates to Satan his plan to rescue a portion of mankind. Salvation divides. Man is separated from each other. We're going to see, coming out of the garden, that there's good seed and bad seed. There's good seed and bad seed that now flows from Adam and Eve. There's those that are being rescued back to God and, and being put back into relationship with him. We're also going to see that there's bad seed, those that continue down that path of destruction, that don't take the, the opportunity to repent. God could have killed Adam and Eve, allows them to live, allows them to continue to procreate and multiply. Some of their uh, descendants choose to, to opt back into God's plan. Most of us today have done that. We've responded to the gospel. We have, we have been saved. We've been brought back into relationship. And God told Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and yours. That, that, that Eve was going to have seeds of both kind, seeds of Satan and seeds of Christ, those that would continue to turn from God and those that would turn back to God. God divides, sin divides, salvation divides. In your notes there, we get into the text, the earthly importance of light. So we've seen an overview of the creative week. Let's look specifically at what God creates on day one. We said that he creates that initial phase of matter that's without form and void. There's darkness over the face of the deep. There's, there's apparently waters that were initially created there. But in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. The earthly importance of light. God uses the light to interact with matter that he creates so that his power and wisdom is made known. That's what light does. Light makes things known. And so there has to be matter present for light to even work the way that it's supposed to. And so we know that there's something there prior to God speaking light into existence because otherwise there's nothing for that light to reflect off of. You've gone outside before and you've, you've shined a light. We can shine a light here, on the, a flashlight on the wall. And it'll show up. We go outside and we shine it, and we can't see the end of the light. It continues to go. Now, if it's a foggy night or if we're in the midst of, 
some type of dust, and we can see the dust that comes across that light beam, and we can see the light. But if, if it's truly a, a clear night to where, to the, to the naked eye, we can't see anything passing through that light, there, there's nothing there for us, right? That light just continues to travel on into infinity. But what we see here is that God creates light so that his, his creation can be made known. He creates light with the purpose of, of opening eyes to see the matter that he is putting into play, the, the form that he's starting to develop. By creating light there in your notes, first of all, God creates a reference for time. By creating light, God creates a reference for time. What we see here is that, that God initiates these intervals of light and darkness, day and night. It gives us our reference for time periods. We said that at the beginning, God creates time. He does it for our reference point through the light, the darkness, the day, and the night. This light source that's created, it's not the sun, right? We know that the sun comes in day four. But it's a light source that's created in such a way to separate the day from the night. I think it's significant, too, that here at the very beginning, there's a definition for what a day is and what a night is. Remember, we've talked about the dispute about what is the first day and what is the second day. Is that a long period of time? Is it 24 hours? We see God here at the very beginning. He separates the light from the darkness. He called the light day. The darkness he called night. The implication here is that here at the very beginning, earth has some type of rotation. But there's some type of rotation going here, and, and while the sun has not yet been created, there has been a light source created on one side of the globe that allows for daytime. And then when the, the, as the earth rotates, obviously the backside does not have that light coming anymore, and, and we have the darkness, we have the night. What we find here in, in God's creation is that there's order, there's structure. Why is that important? Because I need a God of order, a God of structure, a God of faithfulness that I can trust in when Monday comes, when Tuesday comes, when Wednesday comes. This isn't just abstract science that we're talking about. We see God's character revealed in the way that he creates. He creates with order and structure and faithfulness in the laws of creation, right? We don't have to wonder if we're going to have nighttime tonight. Imagine a, a God who would have created that way where every day you don't know what you're going to get. The only way we can even have science and study things is based on a pattern of predictability that the things that we're looking at will continue to happen. That there's order and structure and faithfulness in God's creation. Why? Because he's a God of order and structure and faithfulness. It's his character revealed to us in creation. So as I wake up tomorrow and I see the sun come up, I can trust that God is going to be faithful to me as his, as his child because I know he's a God of faithfulness. He's, he's ordered his universe that way. And so when I have times of doubt whether or not God is going to come through for me, I can look at the creation that declares the glory of God, that declares his faithfulness and his order and be encouraged in my life that sometimes feels like it's all out of order. That there's order looking to creation because we serve a God of order. What are some of the benefits that you guys came up with in your groups this morning for, for why we can be thankful and why we can worship God in, in, the, um, in response to his creation of light? What are some of the things that we benefit from because God created light, because God said, let there be light, and there was? Thoughts on what you came up with in your groups? Or do we just talk about football and other things in our groups? Anybody with things that, that we can be thankful for this morning because God created light on that first day? Okay. Okay. Benefits that, that light gives to us. Reasons to be thankful for God. Creation. Alright, we can see. Alright, we're able to enjoy creation.
Okay? Anything else that we can think of? Yep. Yep, that from a from a spiritual standpoint, but then even from a physical standpoint, the the correlation in, in the New Testament is that there are, there are activities, there are things that are done in the darkness, not just spiritual darkness, but physical darkness. There are there are activities and behaviors that come out in the darkness that that aren't as prevalent in the light. Um, right? Even uh, at the at the day of Pentecost, when when they think they're drunk, they're 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 shocked that they're drunk during the daytime, during the during the normal hours of productivity. That's a that's a nighttime activity. Um, and so you're right, not only from a spiritual standpoint, but from a physical standpoint, light um, offers division from uh, our, our flesh so oftentimes acting itself out. Anything else? All right, secondly in your notes, by creating light, God provides energy and heat. These are two things that come from light. So yes, light illuminates things for us, but... But going even further, light provides energy that we need, and it provides heat that we need. Without the light, without this source of light, we can't have life, right? So, so all of life is wrapped up in God's provision of light, in his provision of energy, in his provision of heat to sustain the life that he creates. God shows authority over this light. He shows authority by his right to name it and to define its function. Remember, these pagan people were, were prone to worship. They, they recognized how important the light was. They recognized how important specifically the sun was when we actually have a name and a, and a, um, a, a filling of God's creation. When God fills his, his form of creation with the sun, they understood how important it was and they were prone to worship the sun God. But God shows the children of Israel that he has authority over it because he names it day and night and he gives it its function. The light is going to separate the day and the night. It's going to separate the darkness from the light. And so God shows his authority over this aspect of creation. But I want to turn our attention to, secondly, the spiritual significance of light. We praise God. We're thankful for light, that God has created light. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the physical benefits of light. But I think it's also important that we, we note the spiritual significance of light. While God used the light to, to make known his creation from a physical sense, God uses the light, Jesus Christ, to interact with the heart of man so that God's holiness and man's sin is made known. God uses the light to interact with the heart of man so that his holiness and man's sin is made known. So God uses physical light to show his power and wisdom. He allows the lights to come on so that we can see his creation, so that we're able to observe it, so that we can see it declaring the glory of God. But from a spiritual standpoint, God takes that, that, that making known quality of light and he applies it to his son, Jesus Christ. John, in, in writing his gospel, calls Jesus the light, says that the light has come. That he's come to expose man and his sinful works. God uses the light to interact with the heart of man so that his holiness and man's sin is made known. Three things under this for you to, for you to, to uh, ponder this morning. First of all, light is always associated with God's glory. Light is always associated with God's glory. It's significant that the New Testament and the Old Testament uses the concept of light for us to better understand who God is. So God creates light because we need it, we need the energy, we need the heat, but he also uses it as a way for us to better understand who he is. And God consistently in his word uses light and associates it with his glory. James 1.17 tells us about our father in relationship to light. It says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
God is light. There's no, there's no deviation in him. There's no changing in him. There's no variation in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the father of lights. Secondly, there's no darkness in him at all. Darkness is used as an antithesis for who God is. First John 1, verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So going back to that that spiritual perspective, God is light, sin is darkness. To, to be a believer, to be a Christian is to walk in light, to associate with God's glory. Because God's glory is associated with light, and so we, we walk as children of light, the New Testament tells us. He's the father of lights, there's no darkness in him at all. Number three, light dwells with him. Daniel chapter 2 this is during the context there. This is during the time when Daniel is trying to, to discern the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is ready to kill all of his wise men unless they can tell him his dream and interpret it for him. And, and Daniel is, is having to take on the task of trying to save everyone. He knows it's an impossible task. Verse 19 of Daniel 2. Daniel 2. Daniel 2. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Daniel praises God because he's a God who knows everything, right? Light makes things known. It, it, it reveals things. Daniel attributes that, that making known and revelation to God and says God is light, that, that he knows everything, that nothing hides in the darkness from him. That's a comfort to Daniel because why? He needed God to come through and reveal something that was hidden from him. He needed to know Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Something that no man, no individual man could know. That would always remain in the darkness of not understanding. But God, who is light, can bring all things to be known by man. And Daniel worships God in light of that. 1 Timothy 6, a passage in the New Testament that carries the same idea. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He's the God of light. Secondly, light is always associated with the things of God. So it's always associated with God's glory, but it's also always associated with the things of God. And so we this morning, desiring to be of the things of God, right? Hopefully we all desire to be counted with God then light too should be associated with us, the way that we live. In John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And if we're truly of God, then we walk after him. We follow after him. How do we do that? By being in his word, the Bible tells us. Psalm 119. It's his word that gives light to our lives. In Psalm 119, two passages for us to look at. Psalm 119, verses 105 and 130. In 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light 
to my path. In verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We're called to follow Christ. If we're, if we're to be of the light, we follow the one who is the light. We do so by yielding to his word. We also do so by avoiding darkness. In Ephesians 5, 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The Apostle Paul calling these church members out of their sinful past, calling them to yield to the light that they say they want to follow. Philippians 2.15 That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So not only are we to live as lights, we're to shine as lights, we're to reflect God's glory to others. First Thessalonians 5, 5. A passage that we studied not too long ago as a church family. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And here Paul tells us to put away the behavior and the activities that would be associated with the night. And then back in 1 John 1, 5. Where God is light, there's no darkness in him. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The picture here all through the New Testament is that we call people that claim to be believers out of that darkness and into light. And if they're truly believers, they demonstrate it by coming out of the darkness and into the light. That's where the, the, the pattern of church discipline is. If someone continues to yield to sin and not turn in repentance, then you're to remove them from the church because they're living their life. They're demonstrating that they're not a believer, that they're not coming out of the darkness and into light. The appeal here is that if you're truly a child of the light, put away the darkness. Come out of it. Follow the one who is the light. The description of darkness is of Satan, Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It's also a picture of sin in Matthew chapter 6. Darkness is always attributed to, to lack of understanding, lack of knowledge, or, or, or willful submission to disobedience. In Matthew six twenty two, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness Jesus uses this passage to remind us that, that um, truth in our, truth or deception enters our body oftentimes through our eyes, the things that we see, the things that we read, the things that we watch. Going back to the psalmist, the psalm says, light comes from your word. I need the light to enter my body so that I'm full of light. But when we choose to not submit to the light, not to submit to the word, we fill our bodies with darkness by the things that we watch, by the things that we look at, by the things that we see. We allow deception to enter our bodies and it produces all kinds of darkness within us. It's also a picture of judgment. In Matthew 8:12, we're told that, that those that are unfaithful are, are put out to darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lastly, in your notes there under spiritual significance, light is always associated with the future victory of Jesus. It's always associated with God's glory. It's always associated with the things of God. And it's always associated with the future victory of Jesus. We're told in John 1.5 that the darkness cannot overcome him. John says in verse 4 of chapter 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Secondly, he is overcoming the darkness of mankind. So, so Jesus is light. The darkness cannot overcome him. But what about us as his creation? 
we, we, we've fallen into darkness, right? But God is rescuing us out of that darkness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, for God who said, let, sh- let light shine out of darkness. That, that's, that's going back to creation. That's going back to Genesis where we are. The very same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We weren't there in Genesis 1-2 when God said, or Genesis, Genesis 1-3 when God said, let there be light. But we were there when God said, let there be light in our hearts. The same God who created light, there was a day and time in your life when he, when he allowed you to cross over from darkness to light, from death to life. And he spoke into your life. He spoke into your heart. And he said, let there be light where there wasn't anything. Where you were formless and void, not fulfilling your purpose. God spoke into your life, spoke light into your life. He's rescuing mankind from darkness. He will be the final light. Revelation twenty one twenty three. So the world began with a light source, and we're not told any details of what that is, so really anything would be speculation. But we are told that when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, he will not need to recreate the sun. In verse 23 of Revelation 21, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Continuing into Revelation 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Darkness is leaving, the day is dawning, and Jesus is coming. That's the assurance that we have in the New Testament. That darkness is temporary. That light is the future. And lastly, we must submit to Jesus as light. We must submit to Jesus as light. In Isaiah 50, we're warned about walking in our own light, making our own decisions, and living life the way that we want to. New Testament says, walk after Jesus, who is the light. Follow his word that that illuminates your path, that is your lamp for your feet. Doesn't mean we have to, though. Isaiah 50, verse 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord? And obeys the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The admonition there is that we can follow after our own light. We can seek to create our own path and seek to create our own rules and do the things that we want to do. We can, we can fashion our own torches and our own ways of living. But Isaiah says, mark it down, you will lie down in torment. Instead, he says, let him who walks in darkness and has no real light to trust in the name of the Lord, to rely on his God. We can choose to walk in our own light or we can choose to cower in the darkness. John chapter 3. Neither of these are desirable. John chapter 3 verse 19. And in this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is our application this morning, that, that light is always associated with the things of God. And we're to live in that light. We're to desire that same association. The New Testament admonition is to turn from our darkness and to run to the light, to live in that light, to walk in that light. And that's my encouragement to us as a church family this morning. But in closing, a point to ponder that I want to give you We've seen that God has created the physical light and how, how great that is. But ultimately, I think God creates the light to give us a reference point for understanding spiritual deep things that we need to understand. And so he constantly references back to that point of creation. The point for us to ponder as we leave today. Spiritually, God takes the without form and void 
and creates life. Spiritually, God takes the without form and void and creates life. He's doing that in us individually and as a church. Spiritually, God takes the without form and void. You can put that in quotations because we're quoting there from Genesis 1. He takes the without form and void and creates life. Okay, so individually that's true of us because we were without form and void. We were lost in darkness. We were, we were that formless, voidless, no purpose existence when God spoke light into our life and rescued us. Rescued us out of our sin, brought us into light, sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 5.17 says we're new creatures. It's a new genesis for us. It's a new creation for us. And so individually, he takes that without form and void and he creates life. And he's continuing to form us and fill us. And that's what we call sanctification. So in the same way, God uses that pattern of the creative week where he takes formless and void and he creates life. And then he, for seven days, counting the day of rest, he he works to fill and to form that creation to where it's very good. God has started that process in us spiritually. And the assurance in Philippians is that when he starts the work, he finishes the work. And so all of us that are believers this morning, God is filling us and forming us into what he desires for us to be. But he's also doing that as a church for us. Right? He took a, he took a, a group of individuals that said, we're going to start something. We're going to plant something. We want to plant a work of God here in Sonoy. And honestly, looking back on it, we didn't have a clue as to what we were doing. All right, we were without form and void. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to, to, to move forward. It was a learning process, a growing process. And I believe God is still working in us and through us. But he's starting to form us and he's starting to fill us. And we're praying that God will continue to form us and fill us, right? We're praying that God would bring people to our church, that God would raise up people in our church to fill positions of authority that are going to be needed for us to accomplish what he has for us. So the point to ponder is, are we submitting to him fully, both individually and as a church? He's the God of light. He's created light. He's he's forming and filling us as his spiritual creations now. He's doing that individually for sanctification purposes in you, if you're a believer this morning. He's also desiring to do it as a church. We've got to decide, are we going to submit to that fully? See, you, you can be sitting here saying, well, well, I know we're praying for, uh, for God to, to bring individuals to our church. I know we're praying that God would raise up elders and deacons in our church. I know that, that we're praying that God would start a ministry in our church, that God would call out people to, to go overseas. And, and I don't know that I f- I'm, I'm qualified to do any of that. That's okay because God takes the formless and the void And he fills it, and he makes it, and he makes it very good to accomplish his purposes. So some of us in here are going to fill some of those roles, but not today. Not today. There's still some forming and some voiding and some void that needs to be filled for that to happen. But it takes us submitting to him, submitting to the work that he wants to do in us. As he's shining light into darkness, as he's rescuing us to him for his purposes, it necessitates that we submit to him so that he accomplishes the work that he has destined for us. I want to close this morning by once again turning to the Psalms. And I want to use this as a, as a closing means of worship for us to get today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 33. Psalm chapter 33. And I want us to, I want to read it. I want you to read it. Not just like we're reading a passage that we're going to study today, but to read it as, a, as it's meant to be read, as, a, as, a, as a, an expression of worship, as a, a call to encouragement because of who God is, the, the creator God. And once again, this psalmist turns our attention to the God who made the heavens and made the earth and, and allows it to be a springboard for why we leave encouraged today. Right, so we, so we leave today, we have an opportunity to assemble with believers, but then tomorrow we get back to the work week, we get back to our normal responsibilities. And we don't want to compartmentalize our, our Christianity. 
We want to see that what happens today on a Sunday is meant to to move us in the right direction throughout our week. Psalm 33, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned he looks out. On all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the account of creation. And Father, I know that it serves multiple purposes. It allows us to defend our faith. It allows us to to know so many things. But God, I pray that as we continue to study together, God, that it would produce a worshipful response in us. God, that we would be reminded of your wisdom and your power, your structure, your order, your faithfulness. God, I pray that we would allow the the creation around us, to declare your glory, even as we leave this morning. Father, as we drive to work tomorrow, for those of us that that leave at a time where we see the sun come up, Father, I pray that the dawning of a new day would draw our attention to the future. There's coming a final day when Jesus returns in all his glory to shine light into every dark crevice. God, I pray that we would celebrate the change of the seasons now as we as we leave today and it's colder than it was last week. God, we know that that this is to be expected because it's October. And the and the seasons are changing. And Father, we we pray that in in the predictability and the expectation of the seasons changing that we can also be pointed to the predictability and the reliance that we have that you continue to take care of us and provide for us as your children. That in the same way you've structured your creation with order and faithfulness, that you're the same God of order and faithfulness in our life, that you're going to provide for us this week. For those that are dealing with financial struggles, for those that are dealing with job security issues, for those that have big decisions looming in their life, For those that patiently wait for you because they desire things for their life. 
God, I pray that they would be reminded of the order and structure that creation declares and know that you have ordered their, their life exactly the way that you want it. God, I pray that we would worship in response to what we're seeing in Genesis. That we would hope in the future because of what we see in Genesis. And God, I pray that you would allow us to leave today encouraged. God, I pray that you would allow us to leave today convicted where we continue to linger in darkness in our life. God, we want to associate with your glory. We want to shine your glory, reflect your glory to others. And we know that we can only do that as we come out of the darkness. And God, as we strive to be a church that's growing and planting other churches, we need as many people out of the darkness as possible. We need as many hands on deck that are ready to reflect your glory that can be sent out to shine as lights all over this dark world. So God, I pray that you would continue to call church members out of darkness into full light that are submitting to you, embracing responsibilities, even when they're scared, even when they feel unqualified, that they're, they're stepping up and taking responsibility to grow, to serve in this church so that we can accomplish the maximum amount of glory as we seek to expand your kingdom. God, I pray that you would do that in us, that you would call Call out a, a, a church that is formed, that is filled, when we started so formless and so empty. Now we pray for that, that created church that you can look at and say, very good. It's very good. It's functioning like it should. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.